I'll pray for us. Lord, we love you. We thank you. And your word is special. It is unique in so many respects. I pray that our ears be turned toward you, our hearts be open to you, we be inclined to hear and to respond properly to whatever it is you want each of us here, each and every individual, myself included, to hear from you. When I believe what the author of Hebrews said, that God is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword, and it penetrates, you're dividing, joins the marrow, soul, and spirit. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Do that, Lord. I pray that your spirit be active upon me and speaking clearly to those who are here and listening. We love you. We thank you. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. As you can tell, we're on Mark 6. If you guys didn't know, we're doing a series in Mark. Only in the refuge can you take a two-month hiatus from a book, go back to it and say it's a series, but that's okay. I love this church and I love that being the case. So to refresh your brain and to remind you, the last time we talked about Mark was around two months ago, <laughs> um, month and a half, two months ago, um, Seaver preached on the last half of Mark 5. And then previous to that, uh, Tim blessed us with a sermon on the first portion of Mark 5. And so we're now returning back to that wonderful gospel of Mark top into chapter six. And so if you have your Bible, go ahead and open it. And that's the text that we're going to be looking at. Now, the main point, and and there's a decent amount of ground we have to cover. As you can see, 29 verses, uh, and I don't want to just skim the surface. I want to go in depth and really kind of dig a little bit here. So we have a decent amount of ground to cover. But the main point, as we look at three different kind of passages, three different chunks that we're going to break this into, is this. If you're a note taker, this is the one thing that you should write down if you only write down one. Pressing the wrong button. It's not spacebar, huh? It is about to show up, so prepare. It's this. A message of repentance, which is what we as Christians must preach, is oftentimes responded to by offense, rejection, rejection of the messenger, and general opposition. We're going to be looking at Mark 6, 1 to 29. We're going to be looking at it in three chunks. And in each one of these chunks, in each passage, we'll see this narrative, we'll see this main point being driven home and what occurs in the events. So we're going to go ahead and we're going to look at the first part, the first portion, chapter six, verse one to six. Now, again, just to remind you um, with what Tim and Seaver preached on, um, Jesus had a great chapter chapter five, like everything went great. Positive response. They welcomed Jesus. If you remember, it starts with the, the gathering demoniac or the, the demoniac and the garrisons of the Decapolis. Um, but uh, Jesus goes there and he's sane and stable um, as Jesus leaves. Okay. Life transformation of this previous demoniac in the gathering. And, and then Jesus goes and, and he raises uh, this daughter 
of Jairus, the synagogue leader from the dead. And, and they're all excited. The whole town's pretty ecstatic. And, and on the way there, he even had this wonderful encounter where he interacts with a woman who'd been bleeding for 12 years. And, and she works her way to Jesus, touches the edge of Jesus' cloak. She's healed. Okay. Chapter five is a chapter of great acceptance of Jesus, great and positive response to the gospel and the message that Jesus brings. Chapter six is a lot different. And it starts with this right here. Let's go ahead and read. Jesus, starting in verse one, left there and went to his hometown, Nazareth, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue. Many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things? They asked. What's this wisdom that has been given him? He even does miracles. Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, only in his hometown, among his relatives and in his own house, is a prophet without honor. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of belief. I summarize this passage, as you can see right there, by um, this being titled, Not the Hometown Hero. Jesus goes back to his hometown, Nazareth, and he doesn't exactly receive a warm welcome. So let's go ahead and look here. It says on the Sabbath, he goes into the synagogue, the place of religious gathering at that time there in first century Israel. There would have been a local synagogue in Nazareth. And, and somehow or another, Jesus got uh, the right, the ability, the privilege uh, to be able to, to speak and to teach uh, at their weekly synagogue meeting that they would have had. And so Jesus teaches and it says that they were amazed. Now, in what sense were they amazed? Well, <laughs> they seem to... At, the beginning say positive things, right? Where did this man get these things? Is that a positive or a negative response? Well, they also begin to say things like, what's this wisdom that has been given him, right? And they say, isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this They're like, we know this guy. How can he be saying these things? What things? What things? What, what things do you think Jesus was saying? It doesn't actually tell us directly right here in this text, the very things that he says. But what was the general flow? What, what, what was the general theme of Jesus' teaching? Mark 1.15. Jason started us off quite a while ago with the first message in Mark. Mark 1.15. Jesus says, I thought I had it pulled up there. I guess I don't. I'm sorry. Uh, right there. Mark 1.15. Jesus says, the time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Repent. Matthew 7, Matthew 4, verse 17. Right before the Sermon on the Mount, which Susan mentioned. Jesus says, from that time on, excuse me, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom has come near. 
Matthew's summary of Jesus's message condensed down was this. It was mainly about this, repent. Mark, distilling the message down, said it was mainly about this, repent. And if you read the Sermon on the Mount, it's, hey, the way you guys is living isn't right. So start living this way. Change, repent. Jesus' main thrust of his message was to repent. So what does the word repent mean? Well, um, okay, cool. I was, I was going to ask, but I didn't know if I should. And then you just said it anyway. That's fine. We have our Greek scholar two on the front row one and two. Metanoia is the Greek word, right? And I probably didn't say it right. Metanoia is the way BLB said it, but they don't always pronounce it right. So um, it's wrong. The word repent simply means a change of mind. It means to turn. And some people have compared it to the idea of, uh, of an about face, okay? Of going in one direction, turning 180 degrees, and now heading the other direction, okay? That's the idea of the word repent. So when Jesus calls them to repent, when Jesus preaches repent, what is he saying? Well, he's saying turn, change, turn from living a life of deceit and turn to God and living a life of honesty. Turn from living a life of sexual immorality and turn to God and living a life of sexual purity. Turn from ways of bitterness and turn to God and live a life of forgiveness, as Susan mentioned. I'm saying change, turn from the old ways and turn to God and turn to his ways. We don't know the exact words that Jesus spoke at that synagogue and what Mark mentioned in Mark 6, but I guarantee you that there was a thrust, that there was an emphasis on repent. And it's interesting, I was texting a few people over the last week or two, um, asking some people, hey, what do you think? If, if, if you guys know your Bible, Jesus goes to Nazareth in Luke 4 as well. It's a much more extended um, sort of passage that we get there. Okay, and, and is it the same one? Probably not. Maybe it could be. I don't know. But in Luke 4, Jesus goes to Nazareth as well. And we actually do get a, an extended piece of what exactly he preaches. And essentially in Nazareth, he preaches, hey, You guys think you're really special because you're Jews, but God loves the Gentiles too. So quit thinking of yourselves as the perfect preeminent, the favorites of God, because he includes Gentiles in his purposes and plans too. And they they don't like that at all. They drove him to the edge of the town, a cliff, literally tried to kill the guy who was their hometown carpenter. Okay. So I can guarantee you that in Mark 6, regardless if it's the same count as Luke 4 or not, he's preaching in some way, in some sense or another, repent. And they don't respond positively. They don't respond positively at all. Okay? There is no warm welcome. In fact, what does it say? End of verse 3, they took offense at him. They took offense, said, we don't like what you're teaching, Jesus. We're offended. How, how dare you? You step on our toes like that? They took offense at what Jesus came in and preached in the synagogue. Jesus, I thought he always made people happy. Uh, not in his hometown, apparently. Not in Nazareth. He offended a lot of people there. Uh, and so here Jesus is. He preaches a message of repentance, and people take offense. 
Now, if we keep going to kind of finish this little passage, this little chunk here, Jesus says, only in his hometown among his relatives uh, is a prophet without honor. Okay, quick side lesson. Doesn't it seem to make sense if you go back to your hometown, everyone's going to listen to you, respond positively, like you, love you? You know, you're the hometown kid. We'll give you a lot more credibility. Apparently not, not for Jesus, right? So what we think oftentimes makes a lot of sense and is wise is oftentimes contrary to and counter to what actually, according to God and his wisdom is the case. Okay, just kind of an interesting little piece or, or side note there. And I've heard people say from this passage, by the way, that, um, yeah, you, the, the lesson is that, you, you know, you shouldn't probably, you know, be really bold in sharing the gospel in your hometown or with your family or with people who, not at all. Jesus went there and shared the gospel. Okay. So Jesus went there, he preached. So the message isn't, oh, don't talk to your family and your hometown friends and the people who know you. That, that's not the message. Okay. Because Jesus goes and does exactly that. Okay. But we see that offense is taken at his message. And let's kind of bookend this now with the final little piece that it mentions. Okay. It's something I know Tad's talked on a decent amount, but this last verse or two is really interesting, right? He couldn't do many miracles there. Those in Nazareth couldn't do many miracles there. What's the reason given? Well, it says lack of faith. A lot of people don't know what to do with that. And it kind of has the does not compute going on there. But it seems to be pretty simple, right? Jesus is saying, Mark is saying here that a lack of faith short-circuited God's power. Right, that Jesus didn't do and, and he wasn't able to do things that he wanted to do in Nazareth. Why? Because there was a lack of faith. It's that simple. And so people don't like that. And they say, oh, yeah, how dare you? know, you can't say it's because of our lack of faith that something isn't happening. Well, Mark said that inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so when the people who God is trying to work with don't have faith that he will work, oftentimes he doesn't work. It's a clear lesson that we can get here from the last few verses here of this chunk in Mark 6. Share a quote that goes along with this from R.A. Tory. We all love R.A., right? The uh, proje and the understudy of D.L. Moody. Brilliant guy. This is from his book that a lot of us hopefully are familiar with, How to Pray. Short little like 120 page book. If you haven't read it, do it. He says, prayers are hindered by unbelief. That's simple. God demands that we believe his word absolutely. To question it is to make him a liar. Many of us do that when we plead his promises. And is it any wonder that our prayers are not answered? How many prayers are hindered by our wretched unbelief? Unbelief isn't okay. It's wretched. And it short circuits and it cuts off the power of God to move in our lives and the lives of people around us who we pray for and who we want to see God move in the lives of. It's that simple. Lesson that we can learn as we conclude the first little piece here. Summary. Jesus goes to his hometown. 
He preaches repentance, offense is taken. Whether it's the same instance or another one, in fact, not just offense is taken, but they literally try to take his life. An extreme amount of persecution is brought against Jesus because he preaches repent. Let's move to the next passage. Sent out on mission is what I have personally titled it. Starting there, kind of midway through verse six. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village, verse seven. Calling the 12 to him, he sent them out two by two and gave them authority over evil spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra tunic. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave is a testimony against him. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons. They anointed and anointed, excuse me, many sick people with oil and healed them. Sadly, we don't get many of the details of this trip. I'd love the details, right? Jesus gets the 12 and he sends them out two by two. So six different groups go out to probably six different regions. We don't know what regions they go to. We don't know how long they were gone. Was it two, three days? I'm probably taking that just to get to the region. Was it, was it a week? Was it two weeks? How long? We don't know. Was it successful, unsuccessful? We don't know. It said that they you know, were able to drive out some demons and heal people. Was that two, three people? What, what was that like? right? This was kind of the first time where they're now doing ministry on their own. Okay. How many of the towns did welcome them versus how many did they have to shake the dust of their feet off? There's so many details in this trip that I just wish I would know, right? And sadly, we don't know many of the details of this trip, but Jesus gives them instructions as they go out. First off, he gives them authority, right? A twofold authority, one to drive out demons and two to heal the sick. I believe that's an authority that exists not just for the 12 then, but for us as all who are born again, believing Christians now. It's not just what I believe. It is the case. Um, I can show you that biblically. We could look at Luke 10 and the 70. They still cast out demons, but, but that's an authority that exists for us too. Then he gives them the instructions, which is interesting. Don't take anything. Right? You can take a staff as if that's the one thing you'd want to take, right? I want to take one thing. Oh, good thing you let me take the staff. Jesus, I really want that. I don't know. Maybe that meant a lot to him. I don't know, right? Basically, like, don't take anything. You're like, oh, man, shucks. That's, that's going to be tough, right? What's the lesson? At times, God wants us to just go out and completely rely on him to provide. Now, does that mean that any missionary or any ministry trip that we go on, say to Uganda, if we take a bag, like a carry-on, that we're in sin, well, if so, I think Joe and Tad are in trouble. But it doesn't mean that. Um, right, right, no, I, I know that's kind of silly, but no, for real, though, right? I mean, um, in theology, we would talk about this, right? As, as Jesus was giving him specific instructions for that time, then, okay, it was 
uh, descriptive for how they should act then, but not prescriptive for us now. Well, how do you know that? Oh, well, because you just got to be careful, thoughtful readers of the Bible. Right? If we know more of the scripture, we, we, we can kind of eliminate and rid some of these goofy sort of interpretations we might have. Um, later on in the book of Luke, okay, Jesus tells them they can take a bunch of stuff. Okay. Yeah, you can take, I can't remember which ones, but you can take money and you can take a bag and, and just only take one weapon, I believe is what it was. But he says you can take a lot of these things. So, so, so what Jesus is saying is not, not every ministry trip you ever go on, don't take anything. He's just saying, hey, there's times where I want you to completely, fully, and absolutely rely on me to provide even the bare essentials when you go out and do ministry, when you live. And that's what he wanted him to do for this first ministry trip. Okay. Then he says this, if you enter a house, stay there. To leave that town. Okay, so don't stay at hotels or Airbnbs. Stay in the house of someone. And if these people don't listen to you, if they don't welcome you, here's my instructions. Shake the dust off your feet and leave. Okay, so these are Jesus' instructions if they face rejection. If the 12 face rejection as they go out in this town, shake the dust off your feet. What does that mean? Like we... How many things do we say as Christians? Because we've heard it a lot. And we're like, I don't actually know what that means. If someone were to ask you, what does that mean? Like, just means, and then you say the phrase again, that's good evidence. You don't actually know what it means. Okay. So what does it mean? This whole shake the dust off your feet, you know? Um, good question. I'm glad you guys asked. Okay. Um, so a note that was made um, by a guy named Craig Keener, solid scholar is he makes a note how um, any devout or any pious Jew, when they would travel into Gentile territory, pagan, ungodly people territory, when they traveled back into the Holy land, or if they traveled back, especially into the Holy space of like the temple, the tabernacle would be considered holy grounds. If they ever did that when they came back, when they entered back into the holy place, the holy land, the holy ground. Okay. What they would do is they would actually kind of shake. I don't know how that look, right? Beat their feet, shake their feet. I don't know. It would be symbolic of essentially saying, we are treating you unresponsive regions, these Gentile pagan regions as unholy or pagan. And they would want to get that bad stuff off their feet before they hopped into the good area, so to speak. Okay. And so kind of an interesting picture. Okay. But, but that's a note that Craig Keener makes is that these devout or pious Jews would do that. And so Jesus is probably kind of using similar language. Okay. And essentially what Jesus is saying to them is he's saying, Hey, tell them that you're going to, that they're unresponsive. Okay. And, and you're going to treat them as unresponsive and unholy regions. Okay. So then they go out and they preach. What do they preach? They preach metanoia. They preach repent. They preach turn. Turn your ways. Turn your way of thinking. Turn from your own selfish ways that are destructive toward God's ways, which are life-giving. That's what they preach. Mark distills their entire message down to one word. And that's what they say. He said, they should repent. Okay. That's what Jesus says. That's what, that's what excuse me, Mark says there is that they preached that they should repent. A message similar to what Jesus preached in Nazareth, right? Repent seems to be a common thread going on here. 
Now, again, sadly, we don't know much about this mission and we don't know much about the response of the areas and the people that this, these six groups of, of two went out to. Sadly, we, we just don't know much about it. Okay, Luke 9, which also documents the Jesus sending of the 12, says that when they returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. We don't get any of the report, though. Okay, it doesn't lay it out for us in two or three pages. So they report. So sadly, we don't know. Okay, in fact, most of what we do know about the response actually comes from season three, episode four of The Chosen. Okay, um, I didn't know if I'd get a laugh or not. So Jason didn't even laugh, and I thought he would. <laughs> um. But hint, what's a hint here on the responsiveness of these regions that the 12 went to? Well, Jesus told them what to do in light of rejection. He prepared them for it. He prepared them for this rejection that they were going to face. Remember the shaking off the dust of their feet. Why would he prepare them for it? Because he knew they would have to face it. So again, we don't know a lot, but in some sense, there was clearly a response of rejection that came to these 12 disciples that went out and preached that they should repent. Okay? Remember the main point is that the message of repentance, which the 12 preached, will always bring about, will often bring about at least, a response of opposition, of offense, and of rejection of the messenger. Okay? Let's go ahead and continue on to the next chunk. Mark 6, 14 to 29. It's the longest one. We'll read through it. King Herod heard all about this. This being the, the, the trip, the results, what was happening. These six that were going places and casting out demons and healing people. Herod heard about it. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said he is Elijah. And still others claimed he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, the man I beheaded has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested and had bound him and put him in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to, because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I'll give it to you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once the girl hurried in to give the king the request. I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in prison, 
and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl and she gave it to her mother. On hearing this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. I titled this section, The Politician Murders the Prophet. Let's walk through it. King Herod starts with him. And he hears, like I said, about this mission, all that's going on. And some people apparently are talking about this mission. Some people are like, yeah, it's crazy stuff that's going on in this mission. It, it must be related to Elijah. Some people are like, no, it must be related to the prophet, which is a prophesied prophet they're referring to from Deuteronomy. And some people are like, no, it's John the Baptist. And King Herod was like, yeah, yeah, it, it, it must be John the Baptist being raised from the dead. John the Baptist had already been killed. And so Mark then just takes a little side note. He just kind of steps aside and says, oh, wait, yeah, as the reader of Mark, you haven't yet heard about how John the Baptist was killed. Let me explain to you exactly how he was killed. And so then he explains kind of the circumstances surrounding John the Baptist's tragic death. And it's quite gruesome, right? Kind of an R-rated little passage here in, in multiple respects. Okay? And so, so it talks about how Herod, first off, um, we're going to say this here. He did this because of his wife, Herodias, his brother, Philip's wife, whom he had married. So King Herod was a pretty wicked dude and he was married and he happened to have an affair. Not good. He had an affair though, with not just any woman, but his sister-in-law, his brother's wife. Okay. Not good. And so then Herod wants to marry his sister-in-law, Herodias. But this isn't stated in the text, kind of some interesting information, though, that you can find from other sources. Um, Herodias is an evil woman as well, maybe even more evil than Herod himself. And um, she actually demanded Herod that he divorce his first wife before she will marry him. And so Herod actually does exactly that. Um, and so he divorces his first wife and then marries Herodias. Now, just an interesting little one minute side note. This is just kind of bizarre, but I found this out in studying uh, a couple of days ago. Herod's first wife that he divorced um, wasn't just kind of an average woman. She happened to be the daughter of a very powerful ruler of a neighboring region. And so when Herod divorced her, she went and stayed with her father, who was the ruler of the Nabataean Arabs. They would have been down south. And uh, what's quite interesting is that uh, later on, fast forward a little bit, uh, the Nabataean Arabs, led by the ruler, whose daughter had been unrightfully divorced by Herod, go to war against Herod and embarrass them and humiliate them and obliterate them, which is just kind of an interesting note. The Jews actually saw this as divine judgment against Herod for his murdering of John the Baptist. But that's stuff that's not in the text, so it's not that important, but I thought it was cool, so now you know it. But, but continuing on, okay, um, Herod's birthday, Sometimes I think about mentioning stuff and then I realize it's not really that important. Only evil people celebrate birthdays, though, in the Bible, if you ever recognize that. 
I had a debate with Michael Russell about this a few months ago. I think I won. So it's evil to celebrate a birthday. Only Herod and only um, who was it in Genesis 4? Whatever. Okay. <laughs> Herod's at a birthday party, his own. He invites uh, a lot of uh, uppity people, of course. And then he invites his now wife, Herodias's daughter, into dance. And this isn't a ballet dance, okay? Um, this is a lewd sexual dance that is unlooked by a bunch of perverts who are watching a young girl dance in this way. It's sick. It's, gr- it, 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 it's a grotesque sort of thing that's going on by evil people who have a lot of power. King Herod says, okay, you know, I'll give you whatever you want. And she says, okay, kill John the Baptist. And so he does. Why was John the Baptist in prison in the first place? Well, it tells us because he said something to Herod. Repent. He came to Herod and he said, God calls you to repent. Repent of your evil. And Herod had lots of evils. Okay? The fact that you just unlawfully divorce a woman, then you shack up with and marry by taking away your sister-in-law from your brother wickedness. It violates so many of the clear sexual commands that are in the Old Testament and the book of Leviticus and so much more. He goes, you're living contrary to God's design and God's ideal. Repent. John the Baptist didn't just go to anyone. John the Baptist went up the ladder to the most powerful, one of the, one of the most powerful people in the land. And he called that person to repent. And that person kind of inspired by his wife and with his wife also nagging on his side saying, I'll throw you in jail. He didn't kill him, even though his wife, Rodius wanted him to. He preserved his life for a while until he kind of got tied up in his own oath. But why ultimately was John the Baptist thrown into prison? Why was his life taken? He was brutally murdered by having his head chopped off. Because he preached repent. Someone didn't like it. Most people won't. A lot of people won't. King Herod didn't. Herodias didn't. And a lot of people today still don't like it. When you tell them they've got to change the way that they're living in order to please God. Is that surprising that we call people to change and they don't like it? It shouldn't be. People didn't like it 2,000 years ago in Israel. People still don't like it 2,000 years later now, today, contemporarily in America. Eh? that shouldn't be a surprise. Summing up this passage, John the Baptist goes to a powerful man, calls him to repent, and he doesn't just face rejection. He ends up paying for it with his life. The politician, Herod, murders the prophet. So hopefully you guys can see this main point that's coming together is, again, a message of repentance. We see it preached and three different passages here, is oftentimes responded to by offense, by opposition, and by rejection of the messenger. So here's the deal. I should have, I should have started or prefaced this. This isn't like a you know pat on the back, you're really good, heartwarming, make you feel really cheery sort of sermon, is it? should have at least prefaced that for you to prepare you a little bit. I'm sorry. But here's the deal. The good news is that means we shouldn't be surprised when it happens to us. 
You're not the first person. In fact, Jesus, he faced it. And by the people in his hometown, the guy who he called like the best man who ever lived up to that point in time, John the Baptist, right? Instead of him, no man is greater has been born of a woman. That guy, he faced it. The 12 who he called and sent out, they faced it. So we shouldn't be surprised. None of us in here should be surprised when we face opposition, offense, insults thrown our way, people turning their back on us, cutting off relationships. We shouldn't be surprised because the people who we claim to follow, admire, that we read about, they faced it too. Let's just look at a few things Jesus said. We, We we seem to we seem to forget sometimes kind of some of the more harsh and forceful teachings of Jesus, but like this is strong, man. Right? And again, this is when Jesus is sending out and commissioning. He's saying, I send you out like sheep among wolves. That's graphic. All you have to know is a little bit about a sheep and a wolf. I don't even need to fill it out. Sheep and a wolf. We're the sheep in the illustration. Preaching repentance to people who are going to be like wolves. That's what Jesus says. Look at another one. Six verses later. You'll be hated. It's great that we have wonderful promises for wisdom and provision and all the things of the like. But we also have promises to the fact that You're not going to be liked by a lot of people. Jesus says, you will, not you might, not you will possibly be, you will, period, be hated because of me, because you identify with me and you preach what I preach, which is repentance. Let's look at it again. I just read this yesterday as I was preparing. I'm like, oh yeah, Jesus says in John 15, I'm the vine, you are the branches. We love that, right? A few verses later, if the world hates you, and it will, remember Matthew 10, when he told him earlier that the world would hate him. Keep in mind, it hated me too. We're not exempt. If we claim to follow this guy, Jesus, that means we're going to face a lot of the things he faced. He faced rejection and hatred, even by those who are close to him. We will too. Again, not exactly a cheery thing, but it's helpful to at least know when we go out into the world that it's coming so that when it comes again, we're not surprised. We're prepared. just says D.L. Moody. (laughs) We always find a way to bring everything back to D.L. Moody in the refuge, don't we? You got got, got to get that in there somehow. I'm going to go back. I don't want to pull up D.L. yet. Um, But again, we shouldn't be surprised, right? Um, And and again, I'm still pretty young, kind of somewhat-ish in the grand scheme of things in terms of this walk with the Lord thing. I share the gospel a decent amount. I should do it more. And there's times where I should and I don't and I shrink back and I know God was wanting me to, but I share the gospel a decent amount. I've received a fair amount of rejection now. Chopping head off? No. People wanting to kill me? No. Of course, it expressed itself in different ways in different parts of the world where persecution is either more or less intense and it looks different ways. But uh, there, there was a particular individual who a while back um, was living a homosexual lifestyle and, 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 and didn't even profess to be a Christian, but agreed to dialogue and have conversation with me. And so um, 
engage in conversation with the guy. And um, man, I I really do think, and, and, and God is my witness, that man, I treated this guy in the utmost of respectful terms and ways and, and, and had dinner with him. And, and, you know, I'm not even the most hospitable guy to ask, you know, what are your, you know, dietary preference? I mean, just all I could to just really show care and, and compassion for this individual to display kindness. But yeah, I mean, also we had a conversation too about the fact that, Hey, the way you're living is contrary to God's design and the way that God calls you to live in this area. And he was, he was vicious. Made himself seem like the victim. And like, I was the most hateful person in the world. Basically told me I was stalking him. Ended up by saying that I couldn't and shouldn't ever talk to him again. And just like, it kind of had me like, did I do something wrong? If calling people to repent is wrong, then I did. But I really didn't. It's not wrong to call people to repent. We have to. It's a necessary response to the gospel properly preached. Okay. It's going to happen. I work as a salesman by profession, as a lot of you guys know. So I talked to so many people when I go out and work of a day. Um, a, lot, a lot of farmers. We're in Kansas. Everyone knows farmers are just good folk, right? Just good folk. I look at Derek, he knows. They're just nice people. No, farmers get pretty upset when I talk about sin and repentance too. <laughs> and I have a lot of examples uh, to, to really put that to the test and show that. Have, have you guys noticed that you can talk about God? Normally people are cool with that. As long as you talk about Jesus in certain terms, people are cool with that. Farmer the other day, though, talking about some of those things. And, you know, it always starts with politics. And then, you know on their end, not on mine. It's able to, to weave it to a conversation about the Lord. But when it got to, because I was really feeling compelled to share the gospel with this guy, the oh-so-necessary part of the gospel, which is uh, you're a sinner, you've rebelled against God, and you stand before him guilty, shut the conversation down, and he was upset. He was mad. How dare you call me a sinner? I'm a farmer. I'm, you know, I'm a conservative. I'm a nice guy. That the the bite, the minute that you point out someone's sin and that they need to repent, a lot of times you're gonna get a response of offense, of opposition, and of rejection. Again, it shouldn't in any way surprise us. Again, like I said, I'm a salesman. And yeah, I'm what three years now. I've been selling stuff and just kind of go door to door, but to farms and it's pretty fun. I enjoy it. Um, I honestly do pretty well at it, which is pretty cool, but I get rejected a lot. I get rejected a lot as a salesman. I see Marlena nodding her head. I know we talked about sales. She used to sell stuff as well. As a good salesman, you need to expect rejection. You need to expect that. Hopefully, I make some sales, and I normally do too. Okay, but if I go up to every single door and knock on it, and expect in every single sale that I'm going to actually make a sale and get someone to sign the dotted line, I'm fooling myself, and I'm going to be crushed more often than 
my desire is actually fulfilled. I expect to have a lot of people say, no, get the heck off my place. What are you doing? We should expect the same when we share the gospel. People are going to have their toes stepped on. People aren't going to like what you're saying. People are going to turn and walk away. They're going to say mean, biting, cruel things to you. We should expect that. And so when we get it, we shouldn't hang our heads. Maybe I shouldn't have done that. You know, tails between our legs and kind of slink off. And maybe I shouldn't. No, not at all. Not one bit. Okay. Happened to Jesus. It will most certainly happen to us as well. Now, all that to be said. You're like, Ty, you're just telling us that everyone's going to always hate us all the time. These people here in this room love us. Maybe we should stay with them, I guess. No, not, not right. Again, Mark 5, Stever and Tim, good response, right? People loved the demoniac, right? Positive response. And, and Jairus had a warm heart toward Jesus and, and who he was. Came the woman sought after Jesus. So we're going to run into God's sake. We're going to run after. We're going to find people and people are going to come to us who, who are expectant and, and desirous and, and, and who want the gospel, So yes, we're going to see acceptance, but yes, we're going to see rejection as well. We're going to see both of them. And so should we pray for people to accept the gospel? Yes, and and we should earnestly push in and cry out for more and expect and have faith and believe that God will reap a harvest and that souls will be saved and that converts will be won. But you're also going to face rejection. Both acceptance and rejection will come when we step out. And when we share the gospel, if there's one pattern that's clear through the ministry of Paul in the book of Acts, it's this. Everywhere he goes, rejection and acceptance, both, not either or, both and. Just follow Paul from the time he's sent out in Acts 13 for his first missionary journey. First place he goes to is Cyprus, acceptance and rejection. Second place, Pisidian Antioch, acceptance and rejection. After that, Iconium, Lystra, Derby, all of them, acceptance and rejection. And then it continues on, right? In chapter 16, when he goes to Philippi, 17, Thessalonica, 18, he goes to Corinth, and Athens too, and in Acts 17, and Jerusalem. Everywhere Paul goes, you have people that accept the gospel, respond positively. And then you also have people that hate him. They hate his guts. They tell him they don't like him. They shake a finger at him. And sometimes they even try to kill him. And one time it appears as if they actually did. And then he just came back to life. Praise God for that. So Paul was a guy that was bold with the gospel. And we read through Acts and we see that. And and, and again, this is an indictment on me as much as it is on, on, I think, anyone else. But why do we not do this? Why are we oftentimes timid and, and we're scared and, and we're fearful? And I mean, I don't think I'm just talking about, I think this is hopefully something that resonates with other people here, that we, we're just, we're cowards sometimes and we're scared and we're timid and we shrink back at opportunities where we know that we should share Jesus with our family or with our friends or whoever. We're just bad at this whole sharing the gospel, being bold and calling people to repent things. We really are. 
and and Tad and I were talking about this the other day. It's like, why why are we so why are we so bad at this? Like stepping out in boldness and proclaiming the mystery of the gospel. Like, why do the Mormons beat us? Not in sound doctrine, they don't. Why do they beat us though in their earnestness and in their commitment? Why do they go door to door and we don't? Huh? Why do the JWs share the gospel open air multiple times a week? They beat us. Why are they doing the things that we're not? Why can the Mormons and the JWs preach a false gospel with more commitment and devotion than we can preach the true gospel that penetrates people's hearts? Why is that the case? I was reading Dale Moody the other day, The Average Christian Life. Jason posted this on the group me, but I love this quote. He goes, the fact is many men don't believe in Christianity because they don't think we're serious about it. And the fact that oftentimes we're not bold in sharing the gospel is evidence of the fact that you're not that serious about it. And your parents or your friends who you've had for years and you've never told them about your faith. That coworker who you work day to day with for months, and you've never once told them about their soul. One day, standing for God, having to either spend eternity with or separated from God. Take this seriously. But Dale said, but when people see that we are serious, and we can, and we can show our seriousness, and the way in which we share Jesus with others. When they see that we're serious and all we undertake for God, they will begin to tremble. What are reasons that we shrink back? We all do it sometimes in some place. What are reasons that happens? Well, I think this is probably the, the biggest one. We're fearful. We're fearful of what people will think and how people will respond. They might reject us. Yep, they might. Remember Mark 6. They actually have a very strong, uh, yeah, probably will. Hopefully one day, though, they'll accept you. They might reject you one, two, five, six times, like Tad said, play the long game. But eventually one day they'll accept. There's a statistic, I don't know who came up with it, that uh, the average person hears the gospel seven times before they accept it. I don't know. But there's something to that, right? But we're fearful. We're fearful, fearful of rejection. The approval of man thing, right? We think that we need to please people. Oh, I, just, I just read this the other day. I was like, oh, that fits perfectly. John 12, 42 to 43. I'll just read it. It describes a group of people, though, who it describes as believers. It says, at the same time, many among them believed in Jesus. Okay. But because of the Pharisees, they wouldn't confess their faith. For fear, they'd be put out of the synagogue, right? I mean, that's right there, okay? Again, it was happening then too, right? People believe in this Jesus thing, but out of fear, they just don't say anything about it or they don't say it as much as they should. So what do we do? What do we do when we're crippled by fear? Second Timothy 1.7, hopefully we have obviously some scripture memory people in here, so hopefully it rings a bell, right? God didn't give us a spirit of timidity. Remember that the spirit that is in you as a born-again Christian 
isn't a spirit that's characterized by timidity. Right? The Holy Spirit compels us to boldness. Be reminded of that truth. And then as Tad would say, just kick it in the mouth. That fear thing, just kick it in the mouth and don't submit to it. Don't be ruled by it. Don't let it have authority. Okay. As it's been said, fear isn't being scared of something. It's being scared of something and then not doing that something. Okay. So you're probably going to be scared a lot of times about having that conversation with that person about Jesus. Just kick fear in the mouth and start the conversation. Say the first line, ask the question, whatever. Right. Another reason, I think a lot of us, especially people who are younger, we see people who are older, the tads of the world who, you know, are ready to have any conversation and spar in any arena or the Joes of the world who, oh, if they go Greek, like the JWs on John 1-1, I don't know what to do. Oh, I wish I'd had Joe on a 9-1-1. Right? Like we're intimidated because we're not like them. We're not as competent. We're not as smart. We don't know as much. We're not as good as others. That's fair. And so if you're not as good as others, you probably shouldn't be talking to, you know, JW's about John 1-1 in the Greek, okay, or, or about um, the, whatchamacallit rule that I just even forgot, the Granville Sharp rule, right? Don't be talking to him about that, right? But share what you can. If you have the Holy Spirit in you and you're born again, that means you know the gospel. And that means you know your story. Share your story. Share your testimony, right? That's John 4. Right, the woman at the well, she just went and said, this is what happened. Jesus said this. And it at least impacted and touched some women that came and met Jesus. So, so yeah, you might not be able, solution, sorry, share what you know. Share what you do know. You don't know this much, then don't be worried about sharing this much. You know this much, share this much. And be faithful in this and hope that as you continue to be a disciple, you'll learn this and you can share that and then you can learn this and you'll share that. But share what you know, right? And then I think if we're honest with ourselves, it's not one or the other here, right? It's not like I'm number one or I'm number two only. And right? things kind of overlap, right? If we we're to be honest with ourselves, and again, I speak with things that pierce my heart just as much. And this is an indictment on sometimes me as I'm like, do I do I really value the message that much? You had something of the utmost worth and value. And you knew it was of the utmost worth and value. And you were so excited about it. That thing would regularly be on your lips to the people that were around you. Do we really value this message of the gospel enough? I once had someone share with me that he was having a hard time sharing the gospel. It was just hard for him. It felt like a duty and all. He just had to. And it was like a drudgery every time. He just had to will himself to do it. He said something I really liked. Not that, but he goes, and then he goes, this came to me. You can't commend what you don't cherish. Ask God to make the gospel beautiful to you again. And sometimes we get to the point where we have the gospel, we believe it, we're saved by grace through faith, but it's not really that beautiful to us. A lot of times because we're maybe not seeking the Lord, we're not in the word, we're not in prayer, we're not in community, okay, we're not being serious about pursuing God. So the gospel kind of becomes dull and kind of stale. And so, yeah, it happens. Ask God to make it beautiful again to you so you can commend the thing that you now cherish more. So 
So what is this gospel? What is this gospel that we need to cherish? Uh, obviously, I've been speaking basically this whole time to people who are in, right? They're in the family. If you're in the family, people don't like what you say, say it anyway. They said it to Jesus too, so go ahead with it. But I don't know, there's some people here I don't know, right? There might be some people who are, you know, skeptics who are, who are just interested or who aren't in the family or who don't yet understand what the gospel is and the pieces together, right? What is the gospel? And it's not a message that just saves those who are lost, right? For believers, it's, it's a message that we need to dwell and ruminate and meditate on again to fire us up. But what's... What's this message, the gospel? And so for those of you who aren't believers, like, I'm just kind of checking this out. At least hear this. At least hear this. Right? What is this message of the gospel? I, I was, as um, Dom just said, Ty, I saw you in evangelism the other day, sharing the gospel. Great time. You guys should come. Um, we had a great time, uh, Tad and Lynette and Abby and Shane and I last week. And I talked to this guy for an hour and a half, um, who we'll call Derek. And Sorry, I don't just name started the D. I don't know why. Anyway, no, not Fraser. Uh, but um, talking with this guy and we talked for for an hour and a half. And um, at the end, you know, we'd been going back and forth on whether or not Christianity was true or whether or not atheism was true. And I said, "Hey, at the end, I just said, can't can I plead with you for a second? I said, at the very least, the very least, let me say this." The message of the gospel, the message of the Bible from beginning to end is beautiful. Can I show you how it's beautiful? He said, yeah, sure. I said, because it's a story of love, which you think everyone agrees. No matter who you are here, I'm sure you agree that love is the most noble ethic that exists. And the story is a story of a God who loves the greatest ethic that exists through the greatest expression of love, which is self-sacrifice, putting yourself on the line, saying, I'll say no to me so I can say yes to someone else. And from beginning to end, it's about the story of a God who expresses love through self-sacrifice. And how does he do that? Well, the God who was seated in heaven, all beauty, majesty, and splendor, stepped down into the muck and mire of this world. And he lived for 30 some odd years amongst us in a place full of hurt, pain, and brokenness of which he experienced it to the hilt. And, and ultimately it ended in this perfect man, this innocent man, this only man who'd ever lived, who was completely righteous. The man who is Susan shared is the perfect representative of God, the father who was Jesus, the second person of the Godhead, God in flesh took upon himself the wrath of God that was due all of us. And he hung on the cross in a perfect expression of self-sacrifice. For who? People who loved him? No, people who hated him, jeered him, mocked him, ridiculed him, beat, spit, mocked, whatever you want to think of that was bad, they did it to Jesus. Self-sacrifice. Said, can you at least look at that and say that that picture of God is beautiful? said, I don't believe it, but it's beautiful. It isn't it? Isn't it those who are in the family of God and those who aren't beg and plead with you? It's also true. How many of you guys have seen that movie, The Sound of Freedom? Okay. 
not many. A few. I don't. I won't say anything about it then because it might spoil for five or six of you do. Um, but but there's so many beautiful pictures of the gospel in that movie, right? And and and, and how there's a plan that's being put in place from the beginning in order to save and redeem before the person who's saved or redeemed even knows it. And that's the story of our God is that from the beginning, when we estranged ourselves from him, he was putting pieces in place. He was doing things that needed to be done so he could save and redeem and rescue and deliver us. And he can't anyone here today. But again, that message requires repentance. The same thing that Jesus preached, the same thing that the 12 preached, the same thing that John the Baptist preached. It requires repentance. And so if you're not in the family, know that that message is true and there's a free gift of being right with God in relationship with him if you repent. If you turn from your own ways and say, Jesus, you're now in charge of my life. I give my life to you. That's all it takes. It's beautiful. If you, if you haven't done that here, talk to someone who probably brought you or who you know that could help you, right? There's nothing sweeter or greater. And so as we close, I just want to ask everyone, what is God asking you to do? Based on what was talked about, what's, what's God asking you to do? Right? It's always a question we should ask. What's he asking us to do? Is he asking you to share the gospel with someone in particular? Your, your, maybe your story or your testimony with a neighbor or a coworker, someone who you haven't been in a relationship for a while with that you need to reach out to and shoot a line to. Maybe you need to call someone who is in your life to repentance that claims to be a Christian. They're just living in sin. It's destroying them and it's leading them down a dark path. Do you need to confront them, talk to them, approach them about it? Right? Well, whatever it is, um, I'll give one, one plug for, I love what we're doing every Friday, um, going to the park, other than the fact sometimes it's hot, but who cares? Um, but uh, we're just doing it at the park, you know, whatever, and doing that for another couple of weeks. Um, but Obviously, we live in Manhattan, college town, college students are flooding in. I really want to be all about it. And I want to go hard at saying, hey, 24,000-ish some students are going to be on campus come August 22nd or what have you. Let's go to the harvest fields. And so we've been having a group of people that come for a while now and do it. It's great. Love it. Love the group that comes. Maybe I, I could be wrong. God's not calling everyone here to do it. I would imagine, though, that there's some people in this room that God wants you to or has been putting on your heart to come do that with the group that does, and you just haven't because of one of those three reasons. And so just say, hey, I'm going to do that, try that, go to that, even though I don't know everything, I know this, and I can share this, okay? So, yeah, I I really want to hit campus hard and, and see a lot of people brought into the kingdom and raised up. But um, I hope we have multiple groups. Maybe, again, not everyone, definitely not, but I'm sure that there's probably some people here that God's been putting that in your heart. And you're just like, I haven't yet. Come on out. Come to it. Talk to someone who you know comes and does that. We can get you plugged in. And so whatever God is asking you to do, do it. Don't delay doing it. Let me pray for us. Lord, we love you. We thank you. You're good. We thank you that you are a God of self-sacrifice. We thank you that you're a God that came to 
redeem and deliver us even before we knew what was happening or what was going on. I pray that we all be people in this room who live a life of repentance and who live a life of sharing the gospel and calling people to repentance um, when you're compelling and prompting and, and putting it on our hearts. And uh, maybe be people that kick fear in the mouth and that, that don't come up with uh, excuses and, and reasons not to open our mouth and say what we need to say and proclaim what we need to proclaim. And so we love you, Lord. I pray that um, this talk hits others as much as it did myself and uh, moves us to action. And uh, I pray that it would be a church that um, is known for, as D.L. Moody said, being serious about this Christian thing. And so we love you, Lord. We thank you. You're worthy of everything. Pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.